Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Last week we ended with Saul accepting that Jesus was the Son of God. And if you remember the story, I mean, he's literally going to arrest the Christians up in Damascus. He, he went to the temple, the authority, and said, hey, these guys are against what we believe. Can I go arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem? And they said, great, we love that. So Saul takes off, and, and, and along the way, Jesus literally knocks him off his donkey onto his back. And he's literally blinded. He meets Jesus right then and there. And he has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? And, he, and, and Jesus somehow puts scales over his eyes and tells him, hey, look, you're going to be taken into town and you're going to meet this person and stuff. And at that moment, Saul's life begins to change because he knew the Scripture, but he was denying that Jesus was the Son of God. And his mind starts to switch at that point because he met Jesus face to face. But Saul was also, you know, he was a Pharisee. And we'll talk about that. And, but he was also a Roman citizen. And these two things are so important in the life of Saul. It's important to anyone at that time. In fact, you know, how do you become a Roman citizen? Well, I mean, obviously you could be born into being a Roman citizen. You have Roman parents, they're citizens. You're born just like we do here in America. You could also purchase your citizenship. You could pay a great amount of money to become a citizen. Or... You could serve in the military, and if you were a great military officer, or you were a great soldier, and, and you were just, you know, you're one of those guys everybody looked up to. You know, you're part of the SEAL team, in a sense. You know, you're, you're, you're just, you just, you're magnificent on the battlefield. Well, they would give you uh, the right of becoming a, a, a citizen. You didn't receive medals. What you received was citizenship, which was a big deal. So Saul was a full citizen. And Saul would actually have three different names uh, because, you know, he's a full Roman citizen. And, and one of his names, or, you know, his Roman name would have, been, would have been Paul. And his Jewish name would have been Saul. And he had a third name. But he went by Saul because he was a good Pharisee. And a good Pharisee would want to be related to a great, you know, uh, biblical character, you know, in their history. And he was named after a king, King Saul. And he was a full-blooded Jew. Just because he was a Roman citizen didn't mean that he was not a good Jew. Now, as later as his conversion, he started going by Paul, and he would be more and more accepted into the Gentile world versus using a Jewish name at that point in time. But he was born into what we believe is an influential Jewish family. And the re- I'm, I'm trying to give you a, a picture of who he is as we get into these scriptures, because the, the, some of the things that he writes, it's important to understand his background. He was born into an influential Jewish family, and the reason we think, uh, think this is because he was highly educated. Saul proves himself as a highly educated man. He, was, he, he adapted into so many different cultures. He knew so many different languages. Therefore, he was raised in one of the best synagogues in, in, in Tarshish, is where he lived. And he attended one of the Greek universities there. It was one of the three large Greek universities in, in that part of the world at this point. Then his influential, wealthy family shipped him off to, to Jerusalem, 
where his father bought for him through, you know, at a great price a seat at the number one teacher of Jewish law in Israel. This was his, in a sense, Stanford education. This was Ivy League for him. And Saul was like the Rhodes Scholar, in a sense, of this group. In other words, he knew what he was talking about. He'd learned the Scriptures. And under Gamaliel, Paul would have learned all the doctrine. That was the chief teacher of that time. And the law. And he would have memorized many passages. And he brought all that together to become one of the best debaters about Jewishness that there ever was. They spent a lot of time arguing the finer points of the law. And he, he learned how to argue in Jerusalem. Now at some point in Saul's life, he would have been sent home. Because a Pharisee would have learned a different trade. So they would send him back home. And we think it's, his dad was a tent maker because he learned that trade. But he also would have taught in the synagogues at the same time in Tarshish. So during Jesus' ministry, Saul missed him completely. Saul did not meet Jesus in the three years of Jesus' ministry. Saul met Jesus when he was blinded on the road by Christ himself. Now, as a Pharisee, Saul would have spent most of his time focused on his own spirituality. Focused on, on you know, what, what he would consider his religious and his moral and his spiritual purity. You know, it was all to make sure that he was the best. And this is why he would have been totally confused by the Christians. Because the Christians were do, always doing what? They were always out there helping the poor and healing the sick. Because the Pharisee believed that the poor was a poor person because God was not blessing them. The Pharisee believed that a sick person was sick because they had not been blessed by God. We see this and you know, that they, they actually thought that, you know, they did something evil or maybe their parents did something evil. We see this when, when they questioned Jesus and they basically say, well, who sinned when they were talking about, you know, a guy that needed to be healed? Who sinned? Him or his father? Because somebody had to sin for him to be that way. That was their thought pattern. So a Pharisee would have been confused totally by a guy, you know, a guy like Stephen, who spent all his time helping other people. That was a waste of time, according to him. They're sick because God wants them to be sick. They're poor because God wants them to be poor. So you can imagine how special Saul felt. He had all the education. He had all the knowledge. Part of the Pharisee world in their thinking was that they would not allow other people to touch them. They would actually be walking down the road or the alleys in Jerusalem, and if they saw somebody who they knew was just full of sin or somebody who was, who was not clean, they would literally turn the corner or cross the road to go by them because they would not want to be touched by a person like that. There was also a group of Pharisees that were very radical, and they were called the bleeding Pharisees. Why the heck would you be called the bleeding Pharisees? Well, they believed that it was a sin to look at a woman. A man should not ever look at a woman because it might lead him to sin. So what they do? They blindfolded themselves. Well, they had to get to the temple. They had to get to all these places. So literally, they're blindfolded, walking around, running into everything. And they were literally called the bleeding Pharisees. I mean, to me, that, that just kind of cracks me up. There was another group called the choking Pharisees. They believed that if you swallowed a gnat... 
You must gag yourself or choke yourself to get the insect out because the insect had not been properly bled according to the Levitical law. So go back to Leviticus and it says to eat a certain animal, you had to bleed them a certain way. You know, I had to get out that blood out of their system and stuff. Well, how do you bleed a gnat? I don't know. I'm not going to try to find out either. But these guys believe this. And, and Jesus actually refers to them when he says, you gag on a gnat, yet you swallow a camel. He was making that point there. So this is the environment that Saul grew up with. He grew up thinking that every sin had to, <coughs> every sin that he committed had to be covered by a personal sacrifice of an animal. Not for anyone else's sin, but their own. So they spent a lot of time going to the temple, you know, uh, in a sense donating or taking animals to the temple to be sacrificed for their own sin. So this Christian teaching that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross, willingly went to take other sins, is very offensive to a Pharisee. So he set out to stop this cult. That's why it's so important to understand his background here. You've got to stop that spread of, of this teaching that's just so against what he believes. So if you're in Damascus, he's going to go up there and he's going to stop it. He's going to travel 175 miles north of Jerusalem just to arrest them. This is so important because Paul becomes the premier teacher of grace, which is the exact opposite of what he's grown up with. He would minister to Gentiles all over the world, the ones that he would cross the street to avoid. So he meets Jesus on the Damascus road, and he's knocked off his donkey, and Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And he's taken into the city blind, and the Lord tells Ananias to go and pray for him. And Ananias basically says, Lord, you've got to be kidding and the Lord says, no, you need to go do this. So he obeys the Lord and he goes to, to, to Saul and he calls him Brother Saul. Two words he thought he would never say in the same sentence in his life. So the scales fall off his eyes. And we're going to start out in verse 18 today. And he says, he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength and Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Those who had previously suffered at this man's hands now were offering a hand of peace to him. And they were breaking bread with him. They were sitting down at the same table. And this is so important for our churches today that no matter where a person has been in their life, no matter what they've done, that when they change their life, we accept them. They should be received by, by grace and mercy and peace. And this is what we see that they're doing with Saul. Saul did not understand grace, but he'll spend the rest of his life discovering it. Verse 20, it says, At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished, astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? You could imagine how confused these guys were. They're coming to hear Saul, who was going to, you know, take all these people away to Jerusalem because, I mean, they're just, they're, they're whacked out. They're, they're teaching something that shouldn't be taught, so, so he's going to arrest them. And here they show up, and Paul is preaching the exact opposite. Now he's, you know, a part of this whole Jesus thing. The shock on their faces would have been just classic. This is a very radical thing for them. 
Verse 22, it says, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus. I bet he did. By proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now those words baffled and proving are debate words. These are, are Pharisaic words. These are words that, that, that they were used to using. And he's just going to argue just like he did before. It's just now he's going to argue for the other side. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And basically, this is Saul's life from now on. One escape after another. One threat after another. So they lowered him down in this big basket. So I, I think Saul is a, is a basket case at this point. And this is how our life is with Jesus sometimes. There are those that say, hey, come to Jesus and all your problems in your life will be solved. Well, I'm sorry, that is incorrect. In two ways, that's kind of true. Eternity with Him and no hell. Okay, that is taken care of. But for those who who told you that life will be all roses and champagne, lied to you. We still have to deal with issues that we have in this life. And there are still hard issues to deal with. You know, life is much easier when you don't have an enemy out there. When you're not storming, in a sense, the gates of hell. He leaves you alone. These guys had great lives. They enjoyed life after Christ. But that does not mean that their life was easier during this time. It does not mean that their life became really easy as they continued to live under the belief that Jesus was the Son of God and He was the only way to heaven. Life actually became more difficult for them, especially for the Jews at that point that were, became Christians. Life can be very tough, but we get help to go along the way. Now in Galatians 1... Paul gives us some details of his life at this point. Because we're in Acts 9. And by Acts, and, you know, Acts 10 and 11, we're 10 years from when Christ died on the cross and went to heaven. And Paul kind of fills in some of the blakes in Galatians. And it says that Paul went to Arabia and, and, you know, soon, right after this. And, and then he came back to Damascus. But the next verse, it says he went to Jerusalem. And I want you to understand, there's a three-year span between that next verse and when he actually goes to Jerusalem. And Galatians kind of fills in some of that. In three years, Saul has been growing and learning who Jesus is. Verse 26, it says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Three years have gone by, and they're still afraid of this man. That's how powerful Saul was in Jerusalem. I'm sure that some of them were pretty bitter and angry. He drug many of them out of their homes and beat them, and even killed some of the relatives. He imprisoned some of them. And it's difficult for them to deal with. Yet the Lord calls him, to join in into to, to the disciples. And it says here, but Barnabas. Now do you remember Barnabas? We talked about him. His name means son of anyone? Encouragement. He's a son of encouragement. He sees the good in people. He's focused on other people. And this is so important because we live in a world that's not very encouraging, don't we? Just watch the news or read the newspaper. Or talk to your friends. Most of them aren't very encouraging. 
We live in that type of world. We need to hear encouraging words more often and continuously. continuously. Verse 27, it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and how the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Thank God for Barnabas. He knows the story from the very beginning, and he's helping him out right now. Paul's not tooting his own horn here. Paul's not going around going, hey guys, I changed, and this is why I changed. Let me argue so you can understand that I've changed. No, Barnabas is doing this. And Barnabas is saying, I've accepted him. You know me, guys. I've accepted him, so you need to also. Now we see something in Saul's life that we can relate to here. Saul was not led to the Lord by one person. He was not discipled by one person. It took a whole team to be able to do that. And they didn't even know they were part of the team that was discipling him. Whole groups were involved in his conversion. The Lord uses a team to influence those in our lives. And it's like this for all of us. Each of us has a group of people who have influenced us. Think about, you know, take Peter and Paul. Or Peter and John, I mean. Paul listened to them when they talked before the Sanhedrin, when, when, when Saul was this, you know, this gun-ho, I'm against the Christians. And here, here Peter and John are up there talking about Jesus. Young Saul is there that tried to intimidate these guys. And the more they tried to intimidate them, the bolder they became. You know, just like who? Jesus of Nazareth. Then there's a group of unnamed people that he persecutes. He's at the trial because Jewish law requires that the arresting person be there for their trial. So he was at every one of these trials. And what does he see? He sees the Holy Spirit at every one of these trials. They're brought in, most of them already beaten. They're trying to intimidate these guys to to shut up about Jesus Christ. Literally. You need to be quiet. But in the end, who's actually intimidated? The Sanhedrin. Why do I mention this? Because someone in your life is observing you. You don't even know who they are. You don't even know who is, is paying attention and watching the actions that you have in your life. Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's somebody at your school. A neighbor who, who hears you through the fence as you correct your children or as you deal with different family members. Someone is always watching. Well, then you had Ananias in the church in Damascus. And then Barnabas. Everyone needs a group of uh, people. All you have to do is start to figure out your role in helping bring others to Christ and do that. You know, most of it is us just showing up and showing people how we respond. Now, sometimes, different situations, I respond so well. And I actually surprise myself. I turn around and I go, wow, man, that was, you responded to that one pretty good. Now, other times, I don't do so well. And literally, I am utterly disappointed in myself. Now, I could tell you a bunch of stories, but I'm not going to do that. 
Well, what do you mean? You're a pastor. You're supposed to respond in a godly manner all the time. Man, I wish I could. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. That is because I am a growing Christian. Just like you are. Hopefully, when I do royally mess it up, the next time I remember how I messed it up and I do it differently. That is the process of maturing through Jesus Christ. Think of it like this. Most of the time... When I'm at home and my son is playing around on the floor, I like to watch him. And he's getting to that point where he's just like, hey, watch me at whatever he does. And he starts, you know, he starts hollering out at us. But what I really enjoy is watching him when he not, doesn't understand that I'm watching him. Because I see who he really is. He's not showing off. And it's so cool to sit there and watch him. There are times when people are watching us and we're not showing off. Because we don't know they're watching us. That is a part of life. That is the reality of life. People watch us. And we need to be willing to be watched in our life. We need to be willing to live a way that other people can look at and say, wow, there's something different about them. Because I wouldn't have responded the way they responded. Or, man, I, re- I would have responded exactly like that. But they actually feel bad about responding that way. We influence people this way. You may be Ananias who leads the person to the Lord like you did for Saul. Or the church of Damascus who who helps show Saul what it means to be a Christian. Or Barnabas who comes along and is so encouraging. Verse 28, it goes on and says, So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. This guy has got a great track record with unbelievers. He talks to them long enough to a point where they're ready to kill him. That's a great track record, isn't it? This is the guy who God wants to be the missionary to the world. It really is unbelievable. But right now, he doesn't understand grace. He's just a saved Pharisee with a really cool story. And he's still acting like a Pharisee. Who's he debating with? The Greek Jews. The most liberal, cosmopolitan, world-oriented Jews. They're so open-minded, they don't even follow most of the laws, yet they want to kill him also. This isn't, very, this isn't great. Now, we also face this in our society today. In our open society, in the era of free speech, First Amendment rights, political correctness, and non-discrimination, you know, it all works until you're a conservative, Bible-believing Christian. And if you start talking like that, you better watch out. If you start talking about what the Bible says about homosexuality. Now, the Bible doesn't say don't love those people. It just says what they're doing is wrong. Those are two different things. For me to say, this is completely wrong, and for me to say, you know, but I still love them like, you know, I want to bring them into the kingdom... That's how we should react, but we also should say that is wrong. If we start talking about how, you know, the, 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 the sanctity of life and the preciousness of life, then all of a sudden we're wrong in the world's eyes. Or what the Bible says about morality, especially, you know, for those who are in leadership in our government. Just watch the news right now. It's terrible. Or how about in the church or in our local government or the government as a whole? Just once, I would love to hear somebody who really messes up stand up and say, you know what, 
I royally messed this up. But instead, it's, well, this is what I'm done. And I, I'm so, you know, I'm so sorry that if you've been offended by this, they're not admitting it. They're just saying, I'm sorry that you're offended by it. I take full responsibility. No, I want somebody to get up and say, you know what? I messed up. That's reality of life. Instead, it's, I apologize to those who are offended. But if you start talking about this stuff out loud, all of a sudden you become the problem. You're the conservative, radical fundamentalist. We face the same issues as Saul did back in the year zero, or 33, or whatever year this was. And just as Saul learned how to communicate... We need to learn how to communicate as well. Saul learned how to be not so argumentative. Saul learned how to make his point clearly, yet not argue about it. And he was very clear with the truth. And when you're very clear with the truth, people aren't always happy about that. But they understand where you're coming from. But all of a sudden, we become the problem. They say, well, what generation do you live in? You should be more accepting of this wickedness around you. Or wait a second, we, we don't use that word wickedness, do, do we? What do we call it? Oh, people's personal choices. We should be more accepting of people's personal choices around us, right? No. But we just got to learn how to say we disagree. Well, this is what Paul is, or Saul is facing here. And in verse 30, it goes on and says, When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. So they took him to a seaport, which is Philip's hometown. We talked about Philip earlier. And they sent him to Tarsus. And this will not be the last time he goes to the seaport and takes a trip you know, across the, <clears throat> the, the ocean there. The next time, he's actually going to go to Rome. So they sneak him out, and he's going home, and he'll be there for at least seven years. And in verse 31, it says, Then the church, uh, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So this becomes a, a very nice and peaceful time for them. Uh, things kind of settle down, and it says, the, the, <coughs> it says here the church was strengthened. And the Greek word here is, is uh, oikodomeo. It means to build a house really well brick by brick. That's what it means here, to be strengthened. The church really started to developing and maturing here, and the opposition you know, has been good for them because they've been able to grow. And now it's a, a time of peace for them. And if you've ever come through a, a tough time in life, it's very difficult to get used to a peaceful time. You have to be reminded over and over again, hey, dude, man, you need to relax. You're not going through a tough time. Yeah, yeah, I am. This going. It's like, no, 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 no. Things have calmed down for you, really. You need to, to just relax and, and be strengthened in the Lord. You don't have to fight about it anymore. You're in a good point. You're in a good time. So the church is strengthened here. It also says that they were, that they were encouraged. And the word, you know, here in the Greek is paraklesis. They were comforted by the, by the Holy Spirit. Para means beside. And klesis means to call. It's like when my son is crying. When my son is crying, I call out to him. Come here, come here. Or, well, since he can't crawl, I go over there usually. But I, I, I comfort him by, he hears my voice. 
And then I pick them up. And it usually, usually calms down. And we're the same way. The Holy Spirit comes and comforts us. And usually we calm down. Sometimes we're, sometimes we're kicking and screaming. But this is what paraclesis means. And for some of us who have grown up afraid of God, sometimes that's because our picture of our Father is the picture that we have for God. Some of us have grown up afraid of God. This is something that you will have to come to grips with. In Romans, Saul calls, uh, Saul, Saul calls God Abba, Father. It's like a kid crawling up into his daddy's lap. It's a good thing. This is hard to imagine for some of us. But it's something that we need to come to grips with. Because God is a Father. But He's a Father without the human failings that, that we see today. Well, we're going to leave Saul for a couple of chapters coming up. But before we get there, I want to really kind of review a couple of things. I want to be reminded that Saul did not decide to become a Christian. Not that he really had a choice in the matter, but the Lord made it very clear and plain to him. He had a very powerful experience that he didn't control. He was drafted, he was impounded, he was incarcerated, you know, by a loving God. In Philippians, he says, I was laid a hold of. It's a very powerful word. It's katalabano. It means I was seized. I was stolen. I was taken possession of by Christ. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So this word katalabana means I was chased down and apprehended. And that's exactly what happens to him. Now, ho- uh, you know, hopefully... For most of us, it won't be such a battle when God calls us. But I got news for you. One of the things that's happening today is a battle for your desires in your life. If Satan can get you to have the wrong desires, if if Satan can get you to make the wrong choices in life, he wins. He wins. He may not ultimately get your soul, but what He does is make you an ineffective Christian. The Lord is saving us, and in saving us, He provides everything that we need. Now, some of us would say, hurry up, Lord, there's a lot that I need. No, 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 no. Those are the things that you want. There's a difference between the things that the Lord provides that we need and the things that we want. Now, another thing that we need to see about Paul is his early days were not that effective in ministry, especially when witnessing. Actually, there's no record of anyone coming to the Lord in the first 10 years of Paul's uh, uh, born-again life. When he came to Christ for the next 10 years, there is no record of anyone coming to Christ. The guy argued with people. When he was a Pharisee, he argued When he was a Christian, he did what? He argued. He just liked to argue. Now, I know some people that are like this, and I usually like to turn the other direction and walk away because I can't stand it. But he just tore people apart with the Scripture. He knew the Scripture so well, he could just wrap you all up or you were so confused. And we see this in in church today. Good little Pharisees point out every little wrong detail. You need to fix this, and, and you need to fix this about your life, and you need to fix this about... And don't forget about this, because the Scripture says, 
Because one thing a Pharisee doesn't like is grace. They either change over time or they leave and go to another church. Because they want truth. They don't want grace. They want harshness. They want rules. They don't want somebody to say, man, I I forgive you for that. Because they can't stand the forgiveness attitude. I can't believe you forgave them for that. Do you know what they did? I have a list here somewhere. Let me find that list. I've been counting everything they've done. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 no. I need to forgive you what? 70 times 7. That's a lot of, you know, let me keep a record of that. 70 times 7, that's 400 and what? 490, okay, I'm on 387. You, You get lost in the middle of it. That's how much grace the Lord has for us. A Pharisee is a person who will tear you down with argument to the point where you have to admit that they're right. And you're supposed to be just like them. But it doesn't work that way. To my knowledge, no one has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. Saul wasn't even argued into the kingdom of God, and he liked to argue with everybody. And yet this was the method he used for many years. If this is your method of witnessing, your method of encouragement in in a way, I I think you need to seriously rethink that method. Now it's good to debate, it's good to, to talk about the nuances, but you can't argue somebody into the kingdom. You know, I grieve when there's no love in someone's voice. When it's all about right and wrong, and they need to think my way because I'm right, or else... You know, my temptation is to argue right back. That's pretty much all of our temptation, isn't it? And in my younger years, I probably would have. But once you experience grace, something changes in your life, and you don't want to fight about that stuff anymore. We shouldn't study the Scripture to load the you know, bullets into our, to our Scripture Uzi, in a sense. You know, Bible, Bible study shouldn't be about arguing every point. The quickest way to get me out of a Bible study is people to sit there and argue the whole time during that study. I don't enjoy that at all. If you find yourself going around telling everyone how to live, then you're a Pharisee. Saul changed, and if that's how you are, you can change also. Because Romans, in Romans Paul wrote, it is your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. It is your gentleness that is my desire. Well, we're out of time, but I really want us to remember kindness and gentleness this week. Because Saul, slash Paul, turns into a person that's so full of grace, that's so willing to forgive, yet instruct and change people. He went from arguing to going... Let me tell you about grace. Because it's grace that saves us. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that this week as I go about my life and and the different people I come in contact with, that I remember your grace. That that shows first. That when I disagree with people or or we look at something and say, man, I, I just don't like that. That grace comes first that we don't just start arguing. Lord, I'm so thankful that you don't argue us into the kingdom. 
I'm so thankful that you're for, you, you forgive us for our sins. I'm so thankful that you looked at me and said, Son, I forgive you. Or daughter, I forgive you. I pray, Lord, that that grace is reflected into our lives. That those we come in contact with see that and respond to it. Because they know that something is different about us. You came down to this earth as a child to represent that grace that you had for this world. And we love you for that, Lord. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May His grace never turn from you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.